A friend pointed me to an article, a story about making poor judgments based on appearances. On a South African farm in the 1800s, there was an amateur geologist who was poking around on a farm and ran across this stone that looked like an ordinary rock. He thought there might be more to it. So he offered the owner of this farm to buy the stone, but she said, it's just a pebble. You can have it. Just take it for free. But the man, again, was convinced that it was more than just a pebble. And so he took it to a leading geologist there in South Africa who discovered that it was not just a pebble. It was, in fact, a 21-carat diamond. So as strange as it sounds, that did not immediately draw a whole bunch of other people to that area who were looking to find diamonds because the general consensus of all of the geologists was that diamonds don't come from that area. That area of South Africa should not have any diamonds in it. They were convinced that the geology of that region wouldn't produce any diamonds, and so they assumed that it was actually just all a big hoax. There must be something else going on. It's got to be some sort of a scam. But more diamonds began to be found in that same region. So they went to this well-respected professor, this professor named James Gregory, who went to investigate what was really going on in this area of South Africa. And he was the authority on geology in the region. But this authority simply did not believe that it was possible for diamonds to form there. And so he came up with a wild theory to, to make sense out of this. Maybe ostriches ate those diamonds in some other region, and then they flew to South Africa and uh, d- deposited those diamonds and they're dung. That actually seemed more plausible to him because he was convinced, well, surely diamonds don't come from this area. And uh, unfortunately, Professor Gregory was, was wrong. Shortly thereafter, they found an 83-carat diamond in that same region. And that, of course, would mark the beginning of a diamond rush in South Africa. So much for his ostrich theory. He was so embarrassingly wrong that people turned his last name into a verb. So if someone was making a bad judgment, they would say that you're pulling a Gregory. Well, at this point in John's gospel, Jesus continues to face skepticism. People are finding it hard to believe that someone that they knew to be a carpenter's son, that they knew to be from Galilee, could be a Messiah, could be the son of God. And so the religious authorities are trying to stamp him out to prevent people from rushing toward him in faith, but they would not be able to suppress the truth. We're going to walk through John chapter 7 in three sections. We'll see these truths. First, Jesus' offensive diagnosis is controversial, verses 1 through 13. And second, we'll allow Jesus to correct bad judgments about him using his own teaching. And then third, we'll see that earthly authorities cannot stop the gospel call from verses 32 to the end. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, I'm grateful to be in a room filled with people who want to hear from you and your word. We ask that you would honor this request. Would you give us favor so that we might be able to hear from you? that we might be able to receive your truth, that we might be able to, to drink from the refreshment of your Holy Spirit 
and the promise of life everlasting. We'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Jesus' offensive diagnosis is controversial. And I'll read verses 1 through 13 into our hearing. If you have your Bible in front of you, I encourage you to read along. John 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the, the, the Jews, feast of booths, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the events that we're reading about here in John chapter 7 take place sometime after the events of John 6. If you recall, Jesus presented himself as the bread of life. He presented himself as the bread from heaven it was a vivid illustration of what we have seen actually all the way through John's gospel so far, most explicitly perhaps in John 3.16. It was this message that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So eating his flesh, drinking his blood was meant to be a metaphor, a vivid illustration for believing in his own substitutionary sacrificial atonement. But the idea that he would give his flesh for the life of the world was too much for some of his believers. It's not what they were expecting. It's not what they were wanting. So many of them turned back and no longer followed him. Others, however, remained with him. This portion continues to describe the divisive nature of Jesus's message. Chapter seven is showing us many more responses to Jesus. There are a lot of responses just in this short chapter from his own brothers to his disciples to the chief priests, the Pharisees, uh, some from within Jerusalem, a crowd, some people from within the crowd, soldiers, and we actually even get a reappearance of our friend Nicodemus, that Pharisee whom Jesus spoke to in chapter three about the need of being born again in order to see and enter into the kingdom of God. But as people are coming to these various disparate conclusions about who Jesus is and having questions about who he is, the religious leaders, the authorities, are trying to silence him. There is this tension between Israel's leaders and Israel's Messiah, and this tension is ramping up here in chapter seven. The religious leaders actually want people to be afraid to believe in him. But their worldly authority 
was no challenge to the authority of God the Father. Jesus now in chapter 7 has stayed in Galilee rather than staying in Judea in order to stay out of the pathway of those Jewish leaders. It says now that the Feast of Booths was coming up. We could talk more about that in a minute. It was just one of those major feasts or major festivals uh, that the Jews would regularly celebrate together in Jerusalem. Most of the Jewish men would return back to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, to be a part of this festival. And so his brothers, who we should understand to be half-brothers, his younger brothers, they were encouraging him to go there. The whole crowds are going to be there. It's the big city. Let's get out of the country and go to Jerusalem, the big city. They're going to see your signs. They will be drawn to you. You should go. Verse 5, however, says that his brothers did not believe in him. Do you see that? It reminds us a little bit about Joseph and his brothers. They were encouraging him to go. They were encouraging him to go do signs, miracles. But it seems that his own brothers were missing the bigger picture of who he actually was. The reason that he had come. It seems like his own brothers might have been cynical about the claims that he had been making of being the Messiah. He alludes to his own identity by saying that his time had not yet fully come, a phrase that we've heard a number of times in John's gospel and we'll hear again. What he means by that, it is not his time yet to be arrested. It is not his time to be crucified. It is not his time to be resurrected and to ascend. It's not yet. It sounds similar to that response that he gives to his mother Mary that we read about at the wedding in Cana where Jesus is operating his, on, on the Father's divine timetable and he is not at all interested in being prodded into subverting the Father's timeline for his earthly ministry. His brothers, of course, were free to go to the feast without causing any sort of stir, but if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's going to have a target on his back. Notice what he says in verse 7. The world hates Jesus because he testifies about it that its works are evil. That is the same world that we read about in John 3.16. That is the same world that God loved by sending his only son into it that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves that same dark and thirsty world that hates his son. In this passage, that concept of the world is going to be played by the religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious authorities. Apparently, Jesus preferred to go to this feast privately, secretly. He intended to go, but he didn't want to go with his family, his brothers. He didn't want to go with the crowds. And so when he does eventually go down to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, He's listening, and he's hearing what people are saying about him. He hears the, the murmuring, the grumbling, the whispering. It's almost as if he wanted to hear the word on the street undercover. What are people actually saying? Not to my face, but what do people actually think about me? And, of course, he hears mixed reports. There are those who say that he is a good man. There are, of course, others who say that he is deceitful. Actually, he's leading people astray. That's obviously a huge difference between being good. If he's good, he's worth following. But if he's deceitful, if he's leading people astray, then definitely we should not be following him. Indeed, he's a false prophet. 
and should be stopped. Jesus' own brothers did not believe. They had seen his miracles, but they didn't understand what those signs were signifying, what they were pointing to. It wasn't actually until after his death, it wasn't until after his resurrection that his brothers would realize that they had pulled a Gregory. One of Jesus' brothers was named Jude. He eventually would believe, of course, he would leave us the book of Jude that we have recorded for us in our New Testament. James, also the brother of Jesus, would write the book of James in which he does confess that Jesus was indeed not just his brother, but his Lord. Verse 13 is really important to understand what's happening here in chapter 13. It says that no one was speaking openly about Jesus for fear of the Jewish leaders. It's really important. When Jesus recognizes that, that people aren't free to make public statements, to, to have convictions about who he truly is publicly, it's at that point that he decides to confront the Jewish leaders to clarify some convicting and conflicting rumors about him. Second, let's allow Jesus to clarify and correct bad judgments about him. From verses 14 to 31. So at this point, Jesus has heard what people are saying about him. He's heard the different, the different takes. And he knows that people are afraid to, to say anything about him publicly, to make any sort of firm conclusions about who he is. I wonder if you've ever felt that same tension are there those in your life who might keep you from speaking out with great clarity about the truth of the gospel? Maybe you're not yet a believer, but you're not really clear about who Jesus is. You've heard some of the rumors. Yeah, he's some sort of great teacher. He's uh, an interesting prophet, an exalted man. Maybe you've even heard the rumor that he didn't actually even historically exist, which is about as plausible as any theory involving an ostrich. But let's just listen to his teaching in this passage and let's let him himself with his own word clarify some of our misunderstandings and perhaps bad judgments about who Jesus is. A, his teaching carries divine authority. I'll read verses 14 through 18. Read along with me. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? He's never studied. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Jesus' teaching was marked by a unique authority that was striking to those who heard him. But it was confusing because Jesus wasn't trained in any sort of rabbinical school. He didn't need anyone to train him up in good theology he affirmed, of course, the authority of Scripture. But it's worth noting that he was himself actually the Word of God in the flesh. He is the very communication of God's wisdom. His teaching wasn't dependent upon human tradition. 
but upon direct divine revelation. His teaching carried that same authoritative weight and tone of scripture itself. And the Jewish authorities who are listening are marveling at his teaching. But Jesus clarifies that he didn't come to try and gain glory for himself. He's not some sort of guru. He wanted to actually to draw attention to the Father, to the glory of God. And if those who listened to his words and recognized the authority of it and were willing to submit to the authority of it, who were willing to submit their will to God's will, they would find life in his teaching. But they don't. And so they're trying to suppress this authoritative teaching. You know, that, that geologist had it fixed in his mind that there could not possibly be diamonds in this area of South Africa. He had these preconceived beliefs. He had these notions lodged in his head that would prevent him from being able to recognize what was actually true. He simply refused to believe it. Recognizing Jesus for who he is means that you might need to give up some of your preconceived notions about who he is. Being willing to let go of the rumors, uh, being willing to let him speak for himself through his word by his spirit. But this is the most important part we must be willing to submit our will to God's will. Otherwise, you can't find out what's ultimately true. Growth and maturity as a Christian does not come merely from growing in information about God's word. Our faith doesn't necessarily grow as we learn more. I think we can see this playing out here actually with the Pharisees. They had plenty of knowledge of God's words but here's what they were missing. They did not submit their will to the Father's will. Maturity, spiritually speaking, comes from not grumbling about what God has provided for us in Christ. Maturity comes from loving Jesus. Maturity comes from listening to his words of life. Let's not assume that growing in knowledge necessarily about the, the things of God is always going to lead to a growth in godliness. It is good and right. I think you know Trinity well enough to know that we care about good doctrine. It is the place to start, but it's not the place to end. It must move into the submission of our will to what we learn. To recognize Jesus for who he is, to not misjudge Jesus, we need to submit our will to his teaching, which, as we have seen, carries the full weight of the authority of the Father and our God. B, he upholds the law and rejects hypocrisy. Verses 19 through 24. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. The crowd answered them, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and y'all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, uh, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, 
but judge with right judgment. Jesus here is challenging the religious authorities' understanding of the law. They've had God's will revealed to them in his law, but we've already seen that they're not willing to submit to his revealed will in the law, but they want to look like they're doing that. And they want to assert their own will. And when they do want to assert their own will over God's will, they will find a way around his law. And so Jesus is calling them on it. He's calling them on it in a very straightforward argument to expose their hypocrisy of simply wanting to have the appearance of following the law without actually following the law. Here's how he does it. It's very clearly against the law to murder. And yet you're trying to kill me. Now, this crowd that has traveled into Jerusalem for the feast didn't know what Jesus was talking about. They hadn't heard. And so they accused him, as they're listening in, they accused him of having a demon for challenging the religious leaders like this, coming at him like that. But the Jewish leaders knew what he was talking about. And actually, we know what Jesus is talking about. We remember what happened in John chapter 5 when he healed that man on the Sabbath they accused him of breaking the law because he, he did that miracle, that sign, on the Sabbath day, which they perceived to be a work, which they understood to be uh, breaking the law. And so they called him on it. He said, hey, you're breaking the law. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. But he flips it on him here. He tells them, are y'all are okay with circumcising someone on the Sabbath? And I, I get it. You want to actually uphold the order of the law by keeping the sign of the covenant, which is what circumcision is. Okay, but you want to come after me for healing a man on the Sabbath. Do you really think that it's okay for you to cut off a part of the body, but it's not okay for me to heal a whole body? You guys aren't judging rightly. You're not thinking carefully. You're just reacting. They want to break the law by murdering Jesus for breaking the law by healing someone. Slow down and just think about it. Well, why do you think these religious leaders are responding like that? Is it really all that mysterious? I think if you know your own heart well enough to know, there's, there's a very real temptation of our own hearts to do similar things. Why were they able to think that they were the righteous ones while they were persecuting Jesus, when actually the exact opposite was true. It's the dangerous disease of self-righteousness. We aren't prone to being able to recognize our own works as being evil, as Jesus has offensively diagnosed them. We're more likely to recognize other people's works as evil, of course. And this is not actually what we would say out loud, but I think it's the thought pattern underneath it. We might say something like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, my motives are pretty pure. And if I reject God's revealed will through his law or his word, it's only because I have really good reasons for it. It can be so hard for us to recognize the darkness of our own hearts. We can be deceptive to others but you've got to be honest enough with yourself to recognize that you can also be deceptive to yourself. The Pharisees thought that they were doing what was right. They did not extend grace to Jesus because they didn't see that they needed that same grace. 
the whole concept of grace is humbling. It attacks our self-righteousness. But when we excuse in ourselves what we are quick to challenge in other people, we are engaging in self-righteousness. That's what it looks like. And it's all a result of a complication of a misjudgment about who Jesus is and why he came. We will not receive his righteousness until we come to the place where we despair of building our own righteousness and defending ourselves and justifying ourselves. We need to let God's grace in Christ put our self-righteousness to death. It's only then that we'll actually be able to correctly see Jesus and receive him and correct our bad judgments about who he is. See He's heaven sent, verses 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is speaking openly. They said nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The response here of some of the people who did live in Jerusalem is interesting. It's different from those who were just before this. They knew, having been from Jerusalem, they knew that the religious authorities were out to get Jesus. They were trying to kill him. But now they're a little bit confused. If the religious authorities are trying to kill him, why are they letting him walk around free? Here he is. Why don't they arrest him? Did they change their mind about him? Did they start to realize for themselves that maybe he is the Messiah? Maybe this is the Christ. Maybe the religious authorities themselves have changed their mind about it. No, Jesus says in verse 28, they know who he is and they do know where he comes from in one sense, at least. On a human level, they know that he has come from Mary. They know that he's come from Galilee, they're willing to recognize him on a physical level as a mere human. But he is truly God. And the reason that they don't recognize that, he says, according to Jesus, the reason they don't recognize that he has been sent from God is because they don't don't know God. They don't recognize him because they don't know the Father. If they knew God the Father, they would receive God the Son. So we have to recognize that Jesus is more than a sympathetic human. He is more than someone who has just come to teach us how to try harder. He's more than just a victim, even, of religious leaders. He is heaven sent. And now he's just publicly called out the religious leaders for not knowing God. Pretty offensive. And so now their hand has been forced. They have heard him make this claim against them. 
and their hand is forced, and now they need to have him arrested. The conflict is very public. And actually, it says more people are beginning to believe in him. They're wondering out loud, well, maybe all these signs, maybe all these miracles really are actually testifying that what he is saying is true. Maybe he genuinely is the son of God. Maybe his teaching comes with such authority because he is God's prophet. Maybe his interpretation of God's law actually makes a lot of sense because he is God's Messiah. But he couldn't be arrested by the authorities of the world until God, by his own authority, would allow it. As more began to embrace Jesus in faith, this pressure to keep him from teaching is increasing. But Jesus' gospel cannot be stopped by human authority. The last section shows us that. Third, earthly authorities cannot stop the gospel call. Read with me from verses 32 to 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we're not going to find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. The chief priests and the Pharisees now are combining efforts to try to stop Jesus. They're sending their police out now to arrest him to capture him. But it's worth noting that as they are approaching him, the people that have been sent, these officers are approaching him, they're, they're hearing his teaching now. They're in his presence and they're hearing him claiming to go back to him who sent him and no one is going to be able to find him. That's intriguing. What does that mean? And some of the authorities, again, only thinking on the physical level are imagining that he's going to go somewhere else geographically He's going to play hide and seek. But he's actually saying that just as he has heaven sent, he is going to return to heaven, return to cinder. Look at verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit as John's gospel continues. But it's important to note that this whole section of John 7 and 8 and really 9 are happening around the Feast of Booths also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's at the end of the summer. The harvest now has been brought in and the Jewish people are essentially camping out in tents for about a week, camping in these temporary dwellings, these booths, tents, tabernacles. And it was a way of reminding them what it was like for their own ancestors to be wandering around in the wilderness, to be anticipating coming into the promised land but having to live in these temporary dwelling places but it also marked the end of the dry season for the weather patterns in Jerusalem. And so it was the beginning of the wet season, the rainy season, 
And as a part of this festival that they're observing together, there was a special traditional ceremony that a priest would be engaged in. A priest would get water from the Pool of Siloam there in the region. He would get water into a golden pitcher and he would bring it and he would, he would pour it into a silver bowl. And then he would get some wine and he would pour that into a different silver bowl. And then he would take both of those and pour them onto the altar. It was a visible ceremony that was meant to remind them that they are dependent upon God for their life-giving water during this upcoming rainy season. But it was also, particularly with that wine, a symbolic way of remembering that God has promised to pour out his spirit in the last days. Water in the Old Testament is often symbolic of the spirit of God. Wine is also symbolic of his blessing and of his favor. This visible, visible ceremony was meant to help remind them that God had promised to pour out his spirit on them as a blessing in the last days, as a sign of the, the messianic times that were going to come. It was anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God. The prophets like Ezekiel and Zechariah spoke of a time when God would pour out his spirit and he would restore the fortunes of his people. And so it's against that backdrop that Jesus steps up with all that's happening in the background and he makes this claim. If anyone is looking for what this ancient ceremony is pointing to, come and see me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, he says. It's like the invitation that he gave to that Samaritan woman at the well, chapter four. He is presenting himself as the one who can quench the thirst of any spiritual soul. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and frail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who thirst and need refreshment. Hear this invitation from Jesus himself, who is the mighty friend of sinners, who is the ally of his enemies, who is the justifier of the one who is willing to let go of his own self-righteousness, the one who brings healing, the one who brings rest, the one sent from heaven to draw you to himself and to raise you up with him on the last day. This Jesus, he invites you to come and to drink these living waters. The message of the gospel that Jesus boldly claims and the witness of all who would hear cannot be stopped. There is no thwarting the father's will in fact, even those who are set out in opposition to Jesus and his message are actually the ones that are being drawn in by Christ's invitation. Look at 40 to 52. Read that with me. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing, learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. It was the very officers who had been sent to arrest Jesus who have come back now empty-handed. And of course, they're going to have to give an explanation for why they have come back empty-handed to the authorities who sent him. And what they say is amazing. Why didn't you arrest Jesus? No one ever spoke like this man. Verse 46. Please notice the response of those who are trying to stop others from coming to Jesus in faith. Verse 47, it says they mock the officers. They say that they've been deceived. These people who actually themselves are self-deceived, accusing those who are coming to Jesus in faith as being deceived. They respond to Nicodemus, even our, our buddy Nick, who was one of them. He was one of the religious leaders, a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee. Can we just like obey the law ourselves and give him a hearing? Shouldn't we listen to what he has to say? Shouldn't we hear from him? Shouldn't we learn what he does? They respond to him with ridicule. You call yourself a Pharisee. You know we're right. We don't need to listen to him. We don't need to hear from him. We don't need to learn what he does. Our minds are already made up. You just need to listen to us. Do you see the irony here? <laughs> the earthly powers who want to suppress the gospel cannot stop the gospel call. Those who are sent to arrest Jesus are the ones who find him arresting. Those who are set out to capture him are captivated by his teaching. Those who are intending to detain him are now being set free by his message. Those who would drag him into jail are the very ones being drawn to his words of life. Even those who are running a hellbound race, friends, are not beyond hearing his voice, are not beyond being known by him, are not beyond following him. You may face battles with letting go of your own self-righteousness. You may face battles with letting go of your own fear of others, the fear that others might mock you, that others might ridicule you for coming to Jesus and giving him an audience, hearing him out, listening to his words of life. But when you taste and see that the Lord is good, you'll find that it was more than worth it. These are key takeaway from John 7. Don't drown out the call to Christ's living water with self-righteousness or fear of others. At the end of chapter 6, we read that Jesus had intended to betray Jesus. Judas is called a devil. 
But here's the thing that Judas had to learn, unfortunately, the hard way. You can betray him, you can slay him, you can do the devil's mayhem, but you can't shake Jesus. Friends, we cannot afford to pull a Gregory when it comes to Jesus. The stakes are too high. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. Thanks be to God who grants us life by his spirit and draws us to his word, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.